special birthday. Ruth, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't know if you want to say a number or not say a number. I leave that to you. That's okay. You can say it. Yeah, you can say it. Happy 80th, Ruth. Thank you. Can I know her? There should be many, many more. Okay. Amen. Thank you. Um, so, like I said in my email that I uh, sent out originally for the for the class, um, I'm not sure that we're going to have a full hour. We'll see. This was not the week for preparing, uh, you know, that much. Uh, given Purim on Tuesday, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, there, there's a lot to say. We'll just see how it goes. Um, but I, I wanted to spend some time in the beginning of this chapter giving a brief recap of Shaul's arc, his career from when he first showed up, or even really before he showed up in the text, because Medrash puts him earlier, um, until now. Um, given that, this is the chapter where, where he's going to bow out. So Shaul begins um, for us in terms of not just the, the literal text, but in terms of what our sages amplify here. Um, back in the, the section of chapter 6 to 9, uh, before there is a king, um, the, in chapter 4, you may recall, we had the war of the Jews and the Pelishtim. Sorry, a little hallway noise here, so it'll be done soon. In chapter 4, we had the war between the Jews and the Plishtim, um, and the, um, sorry, the Jews lost the Aron, and Chafni and Pinchas, the sons of Eli, the Kohen Gadol, were killed, and some warrior came back to Shiloh and gave the report. And all it said in chapter 4 was that it was a man from Binyamin who came back. So Medrash suggests that in fact this was Shaul. Further, there's an idea that when the Aron was taken, the Luchos, the tablets, were not taken as well, but rather they were retrieved. And Rashi suggests from a Medrash that, uh, that Shaul was the one who took the Luchos, took the tablets out of the Aron. So that's, that's his first appearance by that standard. But you could really go back Further, because you can find his parents. His father, Kish, is introduced to us as a Gibor Chayel, which may mean a warrior uh, or a righteous person of substance. And since Shaul is from Binyamin, we might know more about his mother. Remember the story of Pilegesh Begiva at the end of Sefer Shoftim, right? This horrible, horrible story which just gets worse. Um, as you as you go along, it begins as horribly as you can think, and then it gets it just just devolves from there. Um, but part of that story involves the tribe of Binyamin almost being wiped out, and the the um, they they have only a group of six hundred men who survive, and they need to find wives for them. And the wives end up coming, some of the wives end up coming from the town of Yavesh Gilad. I'm not going through that whole story. So Shaul's mother, or Shaul's wife, might be from Yavesh Gilad. The reason why I say might is because it depends on whether Pilegish Begiva happened at the beginning of the period of the Shoftim or the end. It's at the end of the book of Shoftim, 
But there's debate as to whether it happened at the end of the era or whether the story is placed there for structural reasons, but the story actually happened in the beginning of the period of the Shoftim. There's a lot to talk about there. I'm not reopening, say, for Shoftim. We have enough to do in Shmuel. Um, but, for example, one reason to, to say it's in the beginning is because Pinchas shows up in that story. And, you know, again, we have the possibility that Pinchas lives to a very ripe old age, um, but there is a possibility that this story actually happens right after the time of Yehoshua, some 30 years after they enter Israel, instead of 400 years after they enter Israel. That's one of them. Um, another reason to suggest it's in the beginning of the period is because this story stresses there's no king. And if that means there's no king and there's no show faith, there's no judge, when did we have a period like that? Only right after the death of Yehoshua. So that's another reason why some put it in the beginning. So if the story happened, if Pelegish Begiva, the concubine Giva, happened in the beginning of the period of the Shoftim, then hundreds of years have elapsed between then and Shaul. However, if it happened where it's located in the book, which is to say, right at the end of the period of the Shoftim, then Shaul either may be the son of a woman from Yavesh Gilad, or the husband of a woman from Yavesh Gilad. And the reason why that matters so much is because when he is appointed as king, number one, are people thinking about Binyamin from that horrible story and how the tribe of Binyamin waged a war against the entire rest of the Jewish people? And Shaul is going to race to the rescue of Yavesh Gilad, who were threatened by the king of Ammon. Right? Is that also a... Um, yeah, did Ammon threaten Yavesh Gilad because they knew this was where the king's wife or mother came from? Is Shaul... Do they appeal to Shaul because of the connection? I'm, I'm just... As I'm saying all of this, I'm thinking to myself, this may not really be in everyone's head, and I'd be going a little bit too fast with all of this. They, um, it's in my head because I have the Tuesday evening shear for Shmuel also, which is further back in the book. So it's much more in, in, um, in my mind right now. So I apologize if what I'm saying makes absolutely no sense to anybody. Let me, let me, let me try to make this a little bit clearer. Shaul is introduced in chapter 8. Let's start from there. Um, with, uh, with many generations listed, when he's first introduced, Shaul, son of Kish, son of this one, son of that one, which normally means that we're, that this is a great person we are introducing. However, he's from the tribe of Binyamin, which has been a small tribe, and a tribe that really was degraded since that story with the concubine at Giva, in which the tribe of Binyamin fought a war against the Jewish people. In fact, Don Isaac Abarbanel actually argued that Shaul was picked specifically to be from the lowly. You wanted the king not to be the person from the best stock at that point. It was supposed to be somebody specifically coming from a lowly heritage. His father is identified as Kish, who is a gibor chayel, a warrior or a righteous person of substance. And again, his mother may be from that town of Yavesh Gilad, where they found wives for the remaining men of, uh, of Binyamin, or some of the remaining men of Binyamin. Clear? Is that better? Sorry, I, I, everything else on there, you can just forget what I said, don't worry about it, it's not necessary. Um, except that it's Torah, but other than that, it's not necessary. It won't be on the final, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, that's my second time today using that line. Um, 
The, um, okay, so that's Shaul, who again may have been a warrior already in chapter 4. Shaul is not a, is not a child when he becomes king. We know that because we know that very early on in his reign, he has a son, Yehonatan, who is old enough to be a warrior. So Shaul is not, um, is not young at, at all. And in fact, when he dies, he leaves behind a son, Ishbosheth, who is 40 or 41 years old. And if I take the traditional chronology that Shaul is only king for a couple of years, that means that you know, Shaul is already, I don't know, 60, you know, when he, uh, when he becomes king. So he's not, he's not a little kid, um, at this point, and he could easily have been a warrior in chapter four. Clear so far? Minus the opening few minutes? Okay. Chana. We um, we get names of, uh, of some of Shaul's wives. We saw Chinoam HaYisraelit was the mother of uh, Yehonatan, as an example. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. 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 No, Yisraelit from Yisrael, the Valley of Yisrael. Oh, sorry. I, she is Jewish, but Yisrael is what it's saying, not Yisrael. Chana and then Eti. I, to me, it seems very. It makes sense if we count the years that. When his father sends him to, to look for that, to look, it doesn't seem like a 60-year-old or 58-year-old. Yeah, you're right. He's, Something with a na'ar. So it's like it looks at two youngsters, but, but well, you're right, yeah. No, having a na'ar with him doesn't mean that he himself is young. It means he has a youngster yeah, with him. But you're right. I mean, his loyalty to his father, I'm going out looking for the donkeys, and I'm going to keep on going until I find them. And also a certain naivete. Right when he, when he comes to Shmuel's town, and he doesn't know like how to handle giving Shmuel money or whatever, like there there is there is definitely a degree of naivete about him that I wouldn't expect if he's sixty years old. I I, I definitely hear that. Ethi, I was of the same opinion as Hannah that uh, you don't send a sixty-year-old or a fifty-year-old guy looking for donkeys. You send a young guy. Except that he's the one in the family who they have available to send, and that's who they're going to send. We don't know anything about his siblings. No. We don't get that information. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't sit right. Okay. That's the way it goes. We should look at Diver Hayamim. We probably do have something about his siblings there. I just don't remember it offhand. Um, don't we get the impression, um, like when he becomes king, um, that he's uh, he's younger? You know, his brothers. No, that's that's David's brothers. Yeah, we don't get word about about his brother's reaction. Yeah, no problem. Ricky, you were gonna say. Uh, In what way is it calculated that Shaul reigned for only two years or so? So we'll see it when you go through. You'll see. You know, um, you'll see where it says it. Um, if you want to know, I mean, I can tell you, it's, um, I think it's the opening line in, uh, in chapter 11. It's, it says, Shnatayim Malach, something along those lines, Shnatayim Malach. Um, no, 11 is the story of Ammon, and then 12, and then, yeah, 13, chapter 13, sentence 1. 
בן שנה שאול במוחו ושתי שנים מלאך על ישראל. So that leads us to sin number one. 
Shaul's son Yehonatan starts a war with the Plishtim. Um, we don't get any mention of why Yehonatan does that. He simply does it. Um, at first, the Jews are prepared to fight against the Plishtim, um, but then the assault comes. Thousands and thousands of Plishtim come pouring east, and, uh, and the Jews flee wherever they can. Shaul panics. He's scared. He doesn't know what to do. He wants to bring sacrifices to God in this place called Gilgal. He's supposed to wait for Shmuel to do it, but Shmuel is not showing up. So finally, he says, well, he told me to wait seven days. I'm bringing the sacrifices. It's already day seven. I'm bringing the, uh, the sacrifices. Shmuel then walks in the door after the sacrifices have been brought, and he rebukes Shaul. He says, you will not have a dynasty. And he leaves. We talked about the fact that Shaul seems to lose the throne twice, once here and once in the war with Amalek. And I think it was Nanette who pointed out the possibility, which Radak says, that um, the, based on the verses, it seems that what Shaul is losing here is the dynasty, the idea that the throne will continue after him and his family. But he gets to be, uh, he gets to remain as king at this, um, at this point. Um, Hold on one second. I see that there's a message in the chat, but I don't have the chat on. Um, I'm not going. Okay, so I'm, I'm leaving that that question for now. Um, the war with the Plishtim proceeds. Yehonatan routes the Plishtim. Right, he and his aide attack the Philistine outpost, and the, they miraculously are victorious. We had the whole business with requesting a sign from from Hashem. If you remember the uh, the story, saying if the plishtim say this, it means this; if the plishtim say that, it means that. We had some discussion about whether he's looking for an omen or whether it's the psychological reinforcement. Um, but uh, Yehonatan routes the plishtim; the people follow him, and then Shaul goes along with it. Um, and he was about to consult the Urim Betumim to ask the Kohen Gadol, should we go? And then he says, you know, this is too big an opportunity for us to lose. We have to go and we have to do it now. And so he pursues the Plishtim in battle. He declares a fast, that, you know, which we gave different explanations for why he declared a fast. But he says the soldiers shall not eat that day. Perhaps it's just to keep them from pursuing spoils. And Yehonatan is unaware, because Yehonatan has been pursuing the battle on his own. And Yehonatan ends up eating a little bit of honey, and it gives him a lot of energy. His eyes light up. And then he finds out that there was this oath. And he says, wow, that was a terrible idea, the, uh, that we shouldn't be eating. If, I, if everybody had some of this honey, we would be an amazing army. Well, Shaul, um, Shaul then... Um, well, there, there are a couple of pieces to this, actually, that I didn't include in my own notes. I'm going to just mute people because I'm getting background noise. Um, there we go. Um, making a note for myself. One thing I want to make sure to include. Um, the um, Shaul then realizes that something is wrong. Something is not right because the Urim Vitumim, when he consulted the Kohen, he didn't get an answer. So Shaul says something is wrong here, and the, he, uh, he consults this time the Urim Vitumim, this breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, to find out what it is that is wrong, and he ends up discerning that um, Yehonatan ate 
Yonatan had the uh, the honey breaking the fast. We had a lot of discussion in that story of, you know, was he right to have the oath in the first place? Was Yonatan wrong? How could Yonatan be wrong? He didn't even know about it. We had this whole discussion, which we're not going through right now. But Yonatan wants, wants to execute Yonatan for failing to honor the oath. We said part of that may be because Shaul knows the history of nepotism, the whole story with Chafni and Pinchas and Eli, and he wants to show his sons are not going to get away with anything. Yehonatan will be punished. However, the people defend Yehonatan and say, absolutely not. God favored him. God sent us a victory at his hand. Nothing is going to happen to Yehonatan. And so Yehonatan survives. As part of this story, the part that I had forgotten in my notes... Um, we also saw that the people were doing something wrong. They were eating um, from the uh, the meat that they had slaughtered on the blood. And we didn't know exactly what on the blood meant. There were a range of explanations offered. Whether it was that they, when they shafted the animals, it was on the ground and the blood couldn't drain, or whether it was because they ate from the animals without having brought a sacrifice to God, um, we have all these different explanations for what may be wrong with how they did it, but Shaul set things right. Instead of Shmuel being the religious leader, Shaul was actually the one who took care of it, and he set up an altar to God, and he brought a sacrifice. Okay, I've been speaking a lot. I'm going to pause for questions. No, we're good? Yes, Hannah. It's interesting that uh, when they, I just noticed now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of noise in the background. Is that from you? Chana? That uh, when the people redeemed Yonatan with the claim that today is a big victory, they're actually repeating what Shaul did after Yavesh Gilad. Correct. It's they gave him back from his own teaching. Yes, I, we, we did mention that at the time. You're correct. Yeah. They, um, we talked about that. We talked about how that phrase is used. The, um, the, uh, the great victory and the day that Hashem gave and that that's itself the sign. You are correct that, um, that, uh, that that is there. I'm just trying to find one thing here. Yeah. They, um, it was, okay, never mind. I don't need to, uh, to reopen it though. Um, other questions or comments? Yes, Claudette. I'm just going to go back a little bit to last week when we did the review and one of your questions was, um, you know, comparing shows, um, leadership to David's and I just want to say thanks for this shur, because of this shur, I, we all learned together, and we re-spoke the Tanakh with a little bit more critical eye. For instance, the after this past week, mm-hmm. it was about Shul's um, and the Amalek, and I saw a comparison, because Shul, in that story, um, he was afraid of the troops, he gave in to the troops. And if you come to David's life in the 30, in the t- chapter 30, when he, when, I think it was verse 23, where he 
study. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The, um, yeah, I was thinking about it during the Zahar Haftorah. I was hoping that people would remember that and, uh, and that they had made it to Shul in the snowstorm. Um, the, um, just to, to unpack one thing that I had said, Shaul in this war with the Plishtim has two opportunities to ask of the Urim Vitumim. The first time he's supposed to ask, and then he decides it's too good an opportunity to miss. And so he tells the Kohen, Sophia Decha, gather in your hand. We're not going to do this now. Then they go to war. Then Yonatan eats and all of that. And then, um, after that whole story, he tries to inquire of the Urim Vitumim about going further, and he isn't answered. And that's what tells him something is wrong, and that's when he investigates, and he finds out about Yonatan eating and so on. That's the, that's the way that works. Okay, so that brings us to sin number two, and that is the story with Amalek. Shmuel tells Shaul to fight Amalek, but there should be no taking any of the spoils, everything should be destroyed, and he must not leave anybody alive. And when we learned it, we said it's supposed to be a religious war. It's not supposed to be a a routine war. It has to show this is about God and Amalek, and so we're not going to take any spoils, and we're not going to have any captives, no victory parade, none of that. Shaul thinks he knows better. He keeps Agag alive, apparently intending to take him around, which is what they end up, uh, you know, what, what he actually does. Um, he also keeps some of the animals as carbonot, claiming that that was a result of national pressure. Shaul is very proud of what he's done. He thinks that he's done the right thing. Shmuel shows up and Shaul says, I did exactly what you told me to do. Shmuel rebukes him and tells him he has lost the throne. Finally, Shaul apologizes, but at that point it is too late. Yes, Sandra. Sandra, you're going to have to... Uh, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm okay now. I was just wondering, would uh, Shaul's... Um So I think I made the point at some point in there that in general there are a lot of very interesting parent-child dynamics in Shoftim and Shmuel, and in particular what parents do to their kids. So you could add in Gidon. Um, trying to train his son by have, by uh, demanding that he kill the enemy general from Midian. His son refused. Um, you could include Shimshon's parents and Shimshon being a Nazir or quasi-Nazir, although that was what God told them to do. Um, there are a lot of very interesting parent-child dynamics uh, going on. Gidon with his own father, who's a priest for Avodah Zarah, for idolatry, and then Gidon destroying his altar. Um, there's definitely a lot to uh, to work with if somebody wanted to uh, to write a book about parents and children in in uh, in judges and uh, you know in Shoftim and Shmuel. Um, but that's really all I could say, um, you know, as opposed to really being able to draw a connection from Yiftach to what happens to what happens here. I mean, here it's supposed to be more about justice in light of the violation of the oath. In other words, he's done something wrong. Whereas in the Yiftach story, she's done absolutely nothing wrong. It's just that the father took a uh, an oath. But I see, I, I definitely see where you could 
make a link. Other questions or comments? Okay. So chapter 16 and 17, um, oh, sorry, so obviously, you know, um, at the end of that story, Shmuel says he's lost the throne, and that's the second time, and that means that he has lost the throne personally, which um, Ricky and others um, spent some time asking me for weeks after that, so why is he still king? Why isn't this over? God took it away from him. What does Shmuel, what does Shaul think he's doing? Does he expect that somehow he's, God is going to change his mind? But the answer seems to be that Shaul is so afflicted by this loss um, and the Ruach Ra'ah that comes with it, this state of distance from God um, that develops that we're about to talk about, that in his mind, if he can just hold on and get rid of the upstart, he can just bring things back. He never reaches acceptance, effectively. He is living very much in a denial-slash-bargaining stage um, of dealing with this loss. That's really what it, what it looks like. So Shmuel um, anoints David. He's forced to anoint David. Remember, he doesn't want to do it. Um, and when David gains special access to Hashem, then Shaul loses that access. And as Barbanel explains... Shaul feels distant from God, and that is his ruach, ra'ah, this bad spirit. Uh, Barbanel calls it depression. Um, David is brought to play music for Shaul, easing that sense of ruach, ra'ah, Shaul not knowing that David is also, you know, king. Um, the plishtim attack, perhaps they heard of Shaul's decline, we don't know. We do know that they had spies, um, we've talked about that. Um, Goliath threatens the Jews, seems to be taunting Shaul as the one who should be coming out to fight him. Shaul is afraid. David shows up out of nowhere. He kills Goliath, kills Goliath. Shaul seems not to know who he is, which we gave various explanations for. Maybe that's because of the Ruach Ra'ah. Maybe it's just because kings meet a lot of people and he doesn't have to remember the court musician, although the text really sounded like there was a special bond with him. Um, alternatively, he knows exactly who David is, but what he's asking is, is this person the one who is going to be the new king? Is he the upstart? Is he a threat to me? That's what he wants to know, because he doesn't ask who is David, he asks who David's father is, suggesting it's an inquiry into lineage. Um, the, um, he may also promise his daughter to whoever kills Goliath. That part, we said, was not clear in the text. It is said in Shal's name, but it's not necessarily Shal's statement. That sets us up for David as a rival for Shaul and Shaul's enmity for David because right after that victory, we're told Yehonasan loves David and he makes a covenant with him. And that love that Yehonasan has for David seems to be the bond of people with shared ideals. There's a very, very close ideal and personality really for the two of them, for David and Yehonasan. That Yonah's son is a person of great emuna, great faith, and a, and a degree of impulsivity where he just acts on it. And that's something that we see with David when he goes to kill Goliath. And uh, we talked about that when we did the beginning of chapter 18. We talked about the traits that they have in common and the, uh, the, the affection. We talked about the fact that it never says that David loves Yehonah's son. 
That doesn't happen at that stage. It only says Yonason loves David. It says that Yehonasan makes a covenant with David. It doesn't say David makes a covenant with Yehonasan, right? Is this familiar? Do you remember that? The, um, and Shaul knows about the covenant, and he is not a happy camper. And it gets worse, because they go on the Goliath's head tour to take the head of Goliath around the, uh, the, uh, the nation, letting everybody know. And Shaul hears the women singing about David, right? That Shaul with his thousands and David with his tens of thousands. And we gave different ways you could explain the women's song. It doesn't have to be promoting David over Shaul. There are different ways you can read it. However, that's how Shaul reads it. Shaul starts to see David as a threat to the throne. The people in general embrace David. Everybody loves David. Um, Shaul tries to make David a target for the Plishtim. He's got to be a target anyway, having killed Goliath. Um, but he tries to have David marry his daughter, Merav. Merav is, uh, is interested. David is not interested. So then he finds out that his daughter, Michal, the second daughter, loves David. And he says, great. And he manages to have David convinced to marry Michal. Yonatan um, then persuades Shaul not to harm David. Yonatan hears that Shaul wants to harm David. He persuades Shaul not to do it. He gets Shaul to swear not to do it, which is a big deal, because remember in the story with the honey, Shaul had to keep his oath. So he says to his father, I want you to swear that you're not going to harm David. However, then the Ruach Ra'at takes over and he tries to kill David. David flees the palace and, uh, and goes home. Shaul has the home surrounded. He wants to bring David in, whether to claim David, look, he's a fugitive, or whether because he wants to uh, to bring him in to kill him. Um, Michal helps David to escape, right, lowering him out the window. That whole business with the uh, with the goatskin and the trophim. Um David flees to Shmuel for protection. Shmuel prevents Shaul's men from taking David. He puts them in some kind of a prophetic trance. Even Shaul himself ends up in that trance, leading to the second statement of Hagam Shaul Banavim. Is Shaul actually a prophet? And uh, and David escapes. The Yehonatan and David then plot to figure out Shaul's intentions. Does Shaul really want to kill David? We ask, but isn't it very clear that Shaul wants to kill David? And we talked about different ways to understand the fact that David didn't simply run away. For example, maybe David's covenant with Yehonatan requires that he stay, that he not leave. Um, but when, when Yehonatan goes to Shaul and Shaul realizes that Shaul, that Yonatan and David are working together, Shaul threatens Yonatan's life, he insults Yonatan's mother, um, and, he, and Yonatan goes to David and says, you have to flee. We had that whole story with shooting the arrows, and so on. Um, David goes to the Mishkan in Nov, where he tricks the Kohen into giving him food, as well as a weapon. Um, but Doeg, who is a loyalist of Shaul, is there. He is called the Mighty Shepherd. We talk about him potentially as the head of the Sanhedrin. That's a whole discussion we're not going into right now. Um, but David um, goes from there to the Plishtim, to the Philistines. Um, but then he needs to leave the Philistines because they recognize him. So he pretends to have lost his mind. 
and uh, and Achish, the king of the Plishtim, lets David go, saying, uh, "Do I need people who who aren't in their right mind? I don't, I don't, I don't need this." Um, questions, comments? We still okay? All right. So then, Shaul pursues David as a mortal threat. First, he was a threat to the throne. Now he's a, he's viewed as a mortal threat. Shaul hears of David's growth in popularity. He accuses his men of conspiring with David. Doeg tells him what he saw in Nov. Doeg angles the story to make it seem like the Kohanim of Nov are on David's side. Shaul has Doeg massacre the city. David, for his part, hides in the place called Keilah in Yehuda, and then he goes to Ziph. Um, he fears that they're going to turn in, turn him into Shaul after Shaul destroyed a city. Who knows what he would do? Um, Shaul indeed comes after David each time, but Shaul is drawn away from Ziph to fight the Plishtim, sparing David. Yes, Nanette, or is that just your iPad? Yeah. Okay. You know, it's interesting when you uh, when you do the summary. What we and maybe this occurred to everyone except me, but when you do the litany of the attempts on um, David's life uh, through 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 the summary, what what you either see is complete incompetence and or Hashem continually intervening. Right. And and so the question that I have is 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 that the possibility as 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 he is continually thwarted, that Hashem is giving him a chance of redemption. You know, like so the so the first nine times <laughs> that he attempts to kill David and he's thwarted. So I think it's definitely true that well, I'd say, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, um, the uh, the primary item on Hashem's agenda is saving David from Shaul. Meaning, if Shaul succeeds, it's not just that Shaul has lost the chance for tshuva; it's that we've lost our king. So, you know, that I think is the primary um, motivation here. However, it is true that Shaul has multiple opportunities for redemption, and we're going to see in just a moment um, a very interesting aspect of that. So, that is true. In terms of your earlier comment about the level of incompetence that may be involved, it reminds me of the line that we see regarding Shaul at one point where it talks about the many wars that he fights. It lists all these enemies he fought. And it says, which is an odd word. It should say, wherever he turns, he succeeds. So, from Rasha, is being used to give me some kind of a lesson. So some take it as saying, no, wherever he turns, he destroys them. That's the idea of being wicked, is he destroys whoever the enemy is. But there are those who read it as, no, where he turned, he made mistakes, he made wrong decisions, he caused, he caused problems. Yarshia is a negative, and that's why that word in particular is uh, is chosen. There is definitely a degree of... Uh, and some of it is Hashem saving David, you know, like in Zif, where where the Plishtim are brought in, it seems fairly clear to lure him away specifically. Um, and uh, we saw it also. We didn't get to this yet in our review, but when Shaul and his camp are all asleep, 
when David comes in. We took that as also being Hashem doing that to um, to make Shaul vulnerable. So there is that in, in at least some of the cases. Yeah, no, he does. And, and he, he does. He, he does. does. Make yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. we, we saw that back in chapter 20. Okay, so that's It's a while ago. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The, um, so Shaul, he says explicitly, he says, as long as Ben Yishai, his term for David, is alive, your, you and your throne will not be established. So Shaul continues the pursuit of David. He enters a cave where David is hiding. David does not kill him. David just cuts the corner of his cloak, even though David's men would like to do more, like him to do more. David uses the cloak to show that he could have harmed Shaul if he didn't do so. Shaul is very impressed. He says, look, David, I know that you're going to be king. He asks David to swear not to harm his family, and then he leaves. Yes, Ricky. He's not resigned to that. He really believes that um, that this can be reversed. He's a very Did big believer. Did change his mind? Apparently. So Shmuel dies. David descends to Paran. We talked about why. I'm not going into that now, except to note one view is that it's because he believes that with the death of Shmuel, all bets are off, and Shaul is even more dangerous. So he wants to put more distance between himself and Shaul. David marries Achinoam and Avigail. Shaul is angry, and he gives Michal, his daughter, who had been married to David, he gives her to Palti ben Laish. Whether that means he just put her in Palti's care, or whether he was trying to actually marry her off to Palti, um, and whether he's doing something wrong in doing so, we discussed at length. Shaul learns then that David is in a place called Giv'ad HaChachila, and he goes to attack David, but that's when the entire camp is sleeping and David invades the camp along with Avishai. David refuses again to have anybody harm Shaul. He spares Shaul. He takes the water bottle, takes the spear. Um, Shaul apologizes. And that is the last meeting of David and Shaul. David then goes to the, uh, the Plishtim. I feel like I should have done an arc also for Yehonatan because he's going to die in this story also, but... Nonetheless, um, that brings us to the last bit and what we've been doing over the last couple of months. Um, Shaul panics at a plishti attack. Um, he can't find answers from prophets or dream interpreters. Um, and he seeks instead an ove, a necromancer, a medium of some kind to summon Shmuel. However that works, whether that works, he gets a message saying it's over. He and his sons are going to die in the battle, and the Jews are going to lose the war. And yet, he says, I am going to to pursue the war anyway, which we took as a uh, statement in his merit, and going back to Nanette's question about Shaul's opportunities for repentance, um, this we saw in the Medrash is taken as his great redeeming act, the fact that he goes to war even though he knows full well 
that uh, that this is the end. Um, David attempts to help the Jews against Achish, according to some reads, but the strategy is thwarted. He is sent home. He's not able to go out on the battlefield. I thought this was going to be like a 20-minute review. We're 45 minutes in. Um, okay, that's the way it goes. Hopefully it's still useful. Um, questions, comments? People don't need the first 154 weeks. We just basically did a digest. Okay. So, that brings us to chapter 31. If you look on the sheet, you see there a basic outline of this tragic chapter. The opening two sentences tell us about the war. The Plishtim, the Philistines, win the war. They kill Shaul's sons. Shaul asks his armor-bearer to kill him. The armor-bearer refuses. It looks like Shaul takes his own life. I'll explain why it looks like. We'll have to get there. Um, the Jews flee. The Plishtim take Shaul's body and they mutilate it. And the people of Yavesh Gilad, that town that we talked about, um, rescue Shaul's body and they grieve for him. Among the questions that I want to look at in this chapter are, um, how did he actually die? We're going to see that this story appears in Divrei Hayamim, Divrei Hayamim Aleph, chapter 10. The story also appears in the first chapter of Shmuel Bet. But the version of it that's in the first chapter of Shmuel Bet has significant differences. So how did Shaul actually die? Shaul attempting first to get someone else to kill him and then taking his own life as it appears here. Um, is that prohibited? Is that permitted? What was he, what was he doing here and what was his justification? And also, what is David's reaction going to be to the death of Shaul? That we will not see in this chapter, that we will see in the next chapter, meaning the first chapter of Shmuel Bet, God willing. Clear? Okay. I mean, nothing is clear about the death of Shaul, but we're gonna, we're gonna get there, bit by bit. So, let's look at the opening of the chapter then. Parak Lamed Aleph, chapter 31. Pasuk Aleph, sentence one. What a terrible ending to a book. All right, no, no. It's not the end of the book. Like we said last week, Shmuel is one book. Yes, Susan. You keep calling this chapter a tragedy. Yes. I, I, the only reason I'm going to question it is because we've been warned since what chapter that David got Everybody has to feel it for Yonatan. That's just awful. Um, and he's led into this by his father. Yonatan doesn't have the benefit of the prophecy to even know. His father just says, okay, kid, we're going to war. Um, so, so that in and of itself is, you know, is, is very painful. The whole arc of Yonatan is very painful. But I hear what you're saying about the fact that we saw this coming. I hear what you're saying in terms of Shaul 
having, so to speak, earned it, um, I still find it extremely painful in the same way that I found Shimshon's death very painful when we when we learned that in uh, in Shoftim. Um, it's yeah, there's so much potential here. He was the best. When he was introduced as king, we were told there is nobody better. Now, sometimes that's a low bar. But the, um, the, the reality is, like, there's so much goodness in Shaul that becomes corrupted and lost. Um, and there's so much death here. It's Shaul's death. It's his son's death. It's the people who, who suffer in this. So let's see the opening two sentences. Uflishtim nilchamim Israel, and the Philistines were fighting against the Jews. As Rashi notes, this is an orientation clause there, because the previous two chapters took us away from the story of Shaul to talk about David and his life with the Plishtim and Tziklag and Amalek and all that. You could almost forget that there was a war going on. But that was where chapter 28 took us and the whole story with the oath. So it brings us back to the starting point in saying, okay, folks, the Jews are facing a massive attack by the Plishtim. And the Jews fled from before the Plishtim. And they fell in corpses at Mount Gilboa. We don't get a number. They, um, we just told that they fall. The text says the Jews fled from before the Plishtim and they fell as corpses on Har Gilboa. If you take a look at source number one, this is a Mishnah and Mesecha Sota. It's there because in context they're talking about the speech that the Kohenim give to the Kohen gives to the nation before they go to war. So after the Kohen gives his big speech and part of the speech in a discretionary war, not a war of defense, but in a discretionary war, there's a part of the speech that Cohen says, if anybody is afraid, go home. So once that whole opportunity is over, then we're told, They put up guards in front of them, other guards behind them, and they have iron cudgels in their hands. Anybody who wants to retreat, so the guard is licensed to use the iron cudgels to smash him in the legs. Because the beginning of flight is the downfall of the army. And he quotes from here two passages. One was from chapter 4, the report on the Jews' war with the Plishtim, in which we are told by the refugee from Benjamin, the um, Israel fled from before the Plishtim, and there was a great blow against the nation. So that's a result of fleeing. And it also says in our chapter the, um, that the Jews fled from before the Plishtim, and they fell as corpses. So because they fled, therefore they fell. Malbim is extremely harsh. Take a look at source number two. He says, 
it told us that Israel lost their might. They didn't fight at all. They only fled right away. Everybody turned tail to the um, to the Plishtim. That's the way that that Maldim explains what happened here. And then Pasuk Beis, sentence two. Vayad biku Plishtim as Shaul as Banav. The Plishtim caught up to Shaul and his sons. Vayakuf Plishtim as Yehonasan as Avinadav as Malkishua b'nei Shaul. The Plishtim killed the sons of Shaul. Yehonasan, Avinadav, and Malki Shua. So, there's actually a little bit to talk about um, in this regard. Um, first of all, I, I see your hand, but I want to talk about this. The, um, the, the business of catching up to Shaul and his sons, whereas everybody else fled, is something that our Barbanel picks up on. If you look at number three, Shaul The Plishtim caught up to Shaul and his sons, because they kept fighting. They're not fleeing. Everybody else is fleeing, and they are uh, are standing and fighting. Now, the sons we mentioned here, Yehonasan, Avinadav, Malkishua, were already mentioned earlier in Shmuel. Back in chapter 14, sentence 49, you can look it up if you want, when we listed Shaul's family, we listed Merav and we listed Michal, we talked about them, the, uh, his two daughters, and we also listed these, uh, these three sons. However, it appears that there are two other sons who did not fight. One of them is named Eshbaal. If you have a full Tanakh, take a look at Divra Hayamim Aleph, Divra Hayamim 1, chapter 8, sentence 33. That's where we get the lineage of the tribe of Binyamin. And there we're told, there's a man by the name of Ner. Ner produced a son, Kish. And Kish produced Shaul. Notice it doesn't mention any siblings, but that could just be because Shaul is so important. Vishaul Holid and Shaul had Yehonasan, Malkishua, Avinadav, those are the three we mentioned who died here. And poof, there's another one. Eshbaal is also there. So Shaul has a fourth son, Eshbaal, who we knew nothing uh, about at this stage. So that's one more son. This, by the way, is also found in chapter 9, sentence 39 in Divra Hayamim. Esh Baal will be better known to us by another name. What's his other name? Right, Ishboshet, correct, who will become king after Shaul. He is not in the war. We'll talk about that. So that's one other son. And then there's one other who we're missing. If you look at Shmuel Bet, Shmuel 2, chapter 21, sentence 8. Chapter 21, sentence 8. There we are told a very, very difficult story about Givonim coming to punish the house of Shaul for a crime against them. We'll have to talk about that one day, maybe. And there we are told about somebody who is named Mephibosheth, who is the son of Ritzba Basaya, Shaul's wife or concubine. So there's a Mephibosheth, son of Shaul, as well, the um, 
And there's also Armoni, actually. So there are three. I forgot about Armoni, but there's also Armoni, who's, uh, who's listed there in the sentence. So we have more um, who are not uh, here at the battle. There are three who were the ones who, uh, who went out to battle. Who doesn't die in this battle? Well, Ishbosheth, for starters, right? As long as, as well as the other sons. And also a couple of others. I just, Susan, you had a question. Um, what was your question? When they fled, is that a sign of them losing faith in Um, I mean, it's a sign that they think they're gonna die. Oh no! They they also fled. So I wouldn't say so. They also fled back in chapter thirteen, which was when he was in the very beginning of his reign before he had done anything wrong. I think I think we can just flee when they want to flee. You know, just the way it is. Um, not a nice thing to say, I suppose, but that's what you see in Tanakh. So. Who doesn't flee in this battle? I mean, sorry, who doesn't fall in the battle? So one is Ishbosheth. Why is it that Ishbosheth does not fall in the battle? Take a look at Radak in source number five. He says, Ve'ela Gimel b'nei Shaul Shazachar. The three sons of Shaul were mentioned here. Heim Shayyotzimi Moba Milchama. They're the ones who went to war with him. Lafichach Meisu Imo. Therefore, they died with him. Ve'ishbosheth nishar babayis kilohayayotzei b'milchama. Ishbosheth stayed home because he did not go to war. Malbim is going to say the same thing in source number six. I'm just looking at the time. So what we're going to do is we have to pick up next time to get an understanding of who did not fight and whether there's something we're supposed to learn here and who did not die in the battle. And then we move into the story of Shaul and his armor bearer. Okay? Yeah, go figure. I did not expect that. Okay. Well, thank you very much, everybody. I wish you a good time.